Hello everyone, and welcome back to Fear. I'm your host, Paul Rondo, and today I have two spooky tech stories for you, and one kind of goofy story for you, so why don't you go ahead and sit back, relax, and enjoy the spooky stories. Nine seventeen, two thousand and ten, written by Bongwater Snowman. A couple of months ago, I began my classes at Chico State University. As I was preparing for my freshman year, I was able to find everything I needed, except for a laptop. I'm not exactly very good at letting a dollar go for something, especially when I could get that something for less. I scoured the internet for good deals on laptops finding none that suited my frugal habits. Classes were only two weeks away, and I was becoming desperate for a computer. Several days later, I saw an ad in the newspaper for a laptop that was being sold for only 600 bucks, not too far from where I lived. It was a very nice Dell laptop, too. Seeming odd that it was being sold for almost 1000 less than the store price. I drove to the seller's address the following day. The house was farther out of the city, running up to a dense forest. Outside the house was an old Chevy and a mess of old signs and other various vintage-looking items. I rang the doorbell, and a thin man in a flannel jacket came to the door. When I asked about the laptop, he looked almost relieved and told me he was ready to sell it immediately. Luckily, I came in with cash in hand, and after proof of good condition, I went home with a new computer. Excited to have my my first self-bought laptop, I powered it up and began uploading my own programs and applications onto it. Upon searching the hard drive, I found a folder hidden away on it, which was odd because the man selling it told me the the memory was wiped clean and ready for a fresh start. The folder was titled 91710, presumably a date. I opened the folder, revealing six videos and three pictures. Curiosity got the best of me, and I decided to watch the videos. The first video was simply titled 001. The video was shot with a shaky camcorder inside of a vehicle, recording a woman walking out of a bar and getting into her car at night. After a couple of seconds, the woman drove away, and almost immediately, the person recording the video began to drive after her. The video ended after 24 seconds. It almost seemed like the cameraman had been waiting for the woman for a while. Come to think of it, it wasn't too alarmed by this I wasn't too alarmed by this at the time. Just a little unsettled. I opened the next video titled 002. I assumed that this was the next part of the first video. My assumption was right. As it began with the camera on the top of the console, facing out of the windshield, it was raining now, leading me to believe that this was a short while after the first video ended. I could barely make out what the vehicle... I could barely make out that the two vehicles ahead of this one was the same car that the woman at the bar left in. This went on for an unsettling 47 seconds before the camera cut out. I began to get a little nervous, fearing that this might take a turn for the worse. But as if I was watching a television show, I wanted to see where this was headed. Not totally concerned yet, I decided to press on. The third video was of course titled 003. This is the one thing that got me officially concerned. The clip began from the same shaky hands as the first clip. It was now pouring rain outside the car, and I could barely make out a figure in a fur coat with an umbrella walking to the front of a house. I only assumed who this person was and whose house this belonged to. The figure entered the house and closed the door. The following stillness greatly unnerved me. The only thing that could, have, could be heard was the sound of rain dumping on the top of the car. After roughly two minutes of this nerve-wracking nothingness, the lights inside the house cut off. Another two minutes or so went by before the camera was placed on the console again, and the sound of a person exiting the car broke the stillness. After the car door quietly closed, another figure, this time hooded, could be seen walking towards the house. I began to feel a knot tightening the, stomach, tightening the bottom of my stomach as a stranger walked around the back of the house. Whoever this person was, they definitely weren't supposed to be there. After another couple of seconds, the lights at the outside of the house cut off. It was pitch black, and the only rain alerted me the camera was still rolling. The video ended after about nine minutes of rain and darkness. 
I was now pretty sure that this was not an innocent little project or anything of that nature, and I began to feel stupid for not checking this laptop's seller's credibility. Was this person stalking the woman the same person that I met with earlier? Throughout the whole experience, I had a dormant thought in the back of my head to call the police, but I wasn't ready just yet. Reluctantly now, I began the fourth video, 004. It was dark again, but the rain had stopped, and I was left with only silence. Not long after the clip began, I could make out the sound of footsteps on gravel, getting louder as someone was approaching the vehicle. The car door opened and the dome light was turned on, and I could tell that the camera was now on the floor of the car, pointing up towards the roof. I heard fump some fumbling in the background, and suddenly a thump sounded like the back of a truck. An arm abruptly obstructed the camera's view, and a large tarp could be seen being pulled out from the car. I had only one scenario running through my head, and I hoped that it wasn't true. The person picked up the camera and put it back onto the console and began to back up. They drove for a good three minutes before parking in a branched-off road and exiting the car to work on the load they were carrying. Six minutes after the car was moved again in a different location, and the camera was picked up and carried underhand, underhanded away from the car. I could see now that it was the same shit bucket truck that was in the front of the seller's house. I was about to ready to call the cops on this creep when the camera turned towards the house. It was a completely different house than the one I visited. I was a little relieved by this, though. I didn't prove anything. <clears throat> As the fourth camera came to an end, I was wondering whether or not I was prepared to see what was ne came next. I could only hope that this was a prank, or at least had a happy ending. 005 began inside the house. It was extremely dark, and the only thing I could make out was a figure that would occasionally walk in front of the camera. It was also quiet for the first few moments, minus the occasional barking of a dog outside. Eventually, a small sound started to appear. The small sound soon escalated to a loud, muffled scream. Shaking and struggling sounds became more apparent as time went on, as well as crying. A light abruptly, a light abruptly came on, and the camera was lifted and panned to the center of the room revealing a beaten and bloody woman tied to a chair. From what I could make out, this was, in fact, the woman from the bar. The camera zoomed in on her face for what seemed like an eternity before stopping. I couldn't believe this was happening. The original hope that this was a movie or something like that had long since diminished. With only one video remaining, I was beginning to fear for my own safety. I locked my door, closed my blinds, and pushed forward. I began 006, with a small hope that this woman was still alive and that I could have have her saved. The final installment of this horror show began in a classroom setting. The camera was placed on the counter, facing a mirror in which I could see a door. The only sound I could make was a familiar sound that destroyed my hopes. Power tools. I sat in front of the screen for what felt like hours before the sound stopped. More sounds. Then heavy footsteps, accompanied by what sounded like something being dragged. The doorknob turned and the, and the door was pushed open. Out of the darkness of the rest of the house appeared a middle-aged woman dressed in what I only described as, as lab attire, sporting a respirator and a pair of long rubber gloves. This, for some strange reason, gave me a small amount of relief. In the reflection, the woman struggled to drag something into the bathtub. As she hoisted the tub, I could see that it was a large black garbage bag. I felt like I was dreaming. It was like I was watching a horror movie unfolding on the screen. She lifted the bag up from the tub, now empty, except for the whatever entrails that still dropped out. She picked up the camera and placed it on the ground, facing the tub. On the floor in front of the bathtub was an assortment of corrosive substances and several other empty containers. The woman began to dump the liquids in the tub, which was followed by an awful, awful noise that I can only describe as pop rocks mixed with coke. The video ended and I was left bewildered and panicked. I finally opened the pictures. The first was a picture of a truck. The second was a picture of a girl tied up before she was beaten. And the third picture brought up a corrupted file. Notice. Maybe that's a good thing. I managed to keep the two pictures before I handed the laptop over to the police. I was reimbursed my 600 bucks along with a bonus. Apparently the victim was the young girlfriend of the older woman's ex-husband. The older woman was arrested almost a year before, but was freed of all charges due to lack of evidence, and the ex-husband was incarcerated instead. I guess this was a missing link. I hope this has solved any unanswered questions, although I'm not sure who the man in the flannel jacket was, or how he got a hold of the laptop, or how he owns the same truck as a murderer. I guess I'll just leave that to the police.
Howdy. You can call me Jack. It's not my real name. That's what I'll go by for now. I reckon the time to tell my story has come. Believe it or don't, but here it is. I suggest you take away the lessons it teaches, even if you dismiss it as bullshit like 98% of the other stories on the internet. There's more truth in this story than any one of you could know. Now, I've been out of high school for about three years, but that's when this particular event takes place, so I'm going to have to wind my clock back a little here to tell the story. Originally, for my first two and a half years of high school, I attended a school in the deep southern part of America, close to the Gulf. We had all kinds of ghost stories growing up, and if there was one lesson our super conservative parents taught us, it was this. Don't go fooling around in things you don't understand. Now, I was really unpopular in high school in the South. My first two years of high school were a real pain because I was a big dork and everyone made fun of me. I was a loner and all I really did in class was play my Game Boy all day before rushing home to play an MMO I was addicted to. All that changed during my junior year when my mother's job moved us out west. I started to attend a Catholic high school in no more than about 250 students. It was at that time I finally started to fit in and make friends. Uh, No one was out here knew much of of a dork I was, so I opted to hide my power level, as I tend to say on a A dash, and try to make friends once in my life. Who knows? Maybe I could even get a cute girlfriend if I was careful. I started to meet people at the school, At a school that's small, you end up knowing everyone in your class. My first day... My first day I made a new friend named Sam, and at lunch I opted to sit with her and her friends. He told me all about the other kids at the school, who was most popular, who the jocks were, so on and so forth. He introduced me to his friends too. Jim, a big jovial fellow who tipped the scales at 300 pounds. Vogelman, our table's resident computer nerd and hacker and Thomas, the musician who played electric guitar. I also met Stephanie, the school's resident spunky Asian girl. Some of the guys said she could be a bitch, but she seemed cool enough. She was into gaming and never messed with any of us. She even seemed to think I was funny, so maybe that's why she started to call me at home after school on some days. Sam told me all kinds of stories about her, like how she used to make snacks for guys at the school, but then sprinkle Viagra all over them, or pour laxatives into them so that anyone who ate them would suffer the brunt of her painful and arguably cruel joke. I just chuckled to myself and politely refused whenever she offered me anything. Then, there was Rottenbacher. His real name was Jason, but everyone always called him Rottenbacher. Or the Kraut, because he was a hardcore Nazi. He was an outcast and a loner. No one wanted to be associated with him. Every day he'd wear a red swastika armband to school just beneath his jacket where the teachers couldn't see. But whenever he'd get hot and slip it off, or whenever he was charged or whenever he was changing the locker room, he'd be wearing the Nazi armband. Furthermore, on Halloween and on school costume events days, uh, he knew he could get away with it. Rottenbacher always wore an entire replica of an SS uniform like the Gestapo wear, with the black hat and long boots. <coughs> He was a mean and angsty son of a bitch. When everyone told, when anyone told a teacher about him or asked him about the Nazi stuff, he'd shout racial or ethnic slurs at them, cuss them out in hell, Heil Hitler. Furthermore, one peculiar thing that caught my eye was that I couldn't help but notice that Rottenbacher always walked with a slight limp, like he was in pain. Sam told me that somebody once saw him tightening a barbed Salints in the blocker room, like the ones the Catholic priests wear to punish themselves and their for their sins. It was a it was a Catholic school, so I like most people. Just assumed at the time maybe he just wore the salice because he's a devout Christian. It was kind of strange for a hardcore Hitler lover like Rottenbacher, but it was high school and none of us preferred to think too much about stuff like that. After he had done introducing me to everybody. Uh, Sam told me some of the school's old stories, including an urban legend that circulated about Kaylee, a girl had, who that died mysteriously after bleh, a girl that died mysteriously after playing some sort of cell phone game. Sure enough, he could point out the girl in the yearbook to me, and, and everyone recalled that the police had declared her missing under mysterious circumstances. She was presumed dead almost immediately thereafter. 
If you asked anyone exactly what happened, no one could tell you a damn thing. They always just said it was because the, they, she played the cell phone game. Stan, Stephanie the cute, mischievous Asian, Rottenbacher the self-torturing Nazi, the cell phone game. The police investigations of a teen's disappearance. All these people and events were about to come together, drag me into something in which I wanted no part of. It wouldn't even be until over two years later that I finally understood how and why everything went down just the way it did. Anyway, the last half of junior year came and went, and the long summer passed us all by in what seemed like a heartbeat. It was finally time to begin our last year of high school. Everyone was back for the new school year, pumped to start the laziest and most fun year of our high school lives. Even Rottenbacher, still limping around the school in that barbed Solinsk, still spouted his Nazi garbage every time someone decided to mess with him. The year started out eerily quiet. Word was that two more cell phone game-related disappearances had happened over the summer to one boy and one girl from their high school, and that the police were investigating a possible serial killer. According to the paper, the only common link the police found was that every person who disappeared had received a text message that read, Welcome to the game. None of the text messages had been sent from the same cell phone, so this evidence had been dismissed as circumstantial. For me, things weren't half bad. It was this year... It was this year when I finally started to open up and be more of a person. I had made a good circle of friends who I trusted and felt more common about being myself at this point. Gradually, I started to fit in more and more, and pretty soon I was pretty popular in certain circles. Stephanie liked to hang around with me more and more because of how funny she thought my jokes were. Before long, one day, which I still remember as one of the happiest of my life, she came to me in the middle of the campus after school and looked at me with his beautiful Asian eyes and that long black hair and a smile to die for. She asked me right then, Jack, will you go out with me? I laughed, ran, and jumped for joy. Of course I will, I said, and danced around with her in the front of everyone. I finally had a girlfriend. I still remember that one as the happiest days of my life, if not the happiest. We went on, we went on dates. We hung out after school. She even started to eat lunch with Sam, Jim, Bogleman and I every day. Maybe I wouldn't have maybe I wouldn't have been so happy had I known what was going to happen next. There was one day at lunch when she started sitting with us when she mentioned that while sleeping over with her friends one night, they had stayed up late and some girls from another high school talking about the cell phone game. She said that these girls knew all about the rules of the game and that they had explained it all to her in great detail. Supposedly, you can join the game at any time by sending a text message at midnight to the right phone number. The text messages were supposed to say, I wish for the power to curse. If you did it right, you would get a message in return that said, Welcome to the game. And supposedly, this was the reason they had given This was the reason they had given for why the police found the message on the phones of everyone that had disappeared. Stephanie went on to talk about the game. We all listened attentively to what she was saying. She told us that once someone was in the game, they were in danger. Within two weeks, they had to complete one of number of different tasks or else they would be dragged away at night. I stopped right there. Dragged away? By what? To where? She got silent for a moment. I don't know. She whispered before continuing her story. She said that in order to protect oneself from being dragged away, you could do one of two things. The first was to find a special protective item. The item could be anything. You never knew what it was going to be, but it seemed that whatever the item was, it would take the bearer suffer. It would make the bearer suffer in some way. This was this was considered a small price to pay in return for protection for as long as you wore the item. The second way was to be to bring someone else into the game. This could be done by sending the text message "Welcome to the game" to someone else's phone. If someone received the text message from someone else who was in the game, then that meant that this person was now in the game too, and subject to all the same rules and consequences of the game. If the person didn't find a protective item themselves, or bring another person to the game, then they too would be dragged away. The catch about the second was this. While the protective item, if found, could protect you indefinitely for as long as you kept it with you, bringing someone else in the game would only buy you a temporary grace period. 
The first time you brought someone to the game, you could get a two-week extension, then only one week. Eventually, the grace period would get shorter and shorter until you barely thought yourself any time for bringing someone else into the game. By that time, you needed to have... By that time, you need to have found yourself a protective item. Even though I've always been something of a xenophile, I didn't like hearing her talk about this stuff. So I told her what a bunch of nonsense. You really think so, she asked? If it's true, it would explain why the police found. Imagine how cool that would be to be able to curse anyone who messed with you by bringing them into the game. You can get rid of anyone and no one would ever know. It was an edge in her voice I'd never heard before from Stephanie. She almost sounded intoxicated at the thought of it. Truth be told, it scared the hell out of me. Don't go talking like that, I told her. Stuff like that's beyond people like you and me. You shouldn't go messing with stuff like that. What if you got involved in it and then it turned out to be true? What would I do if something happened to you? Promise me you won't go messing around with that stuff. She gave me a funny look. I never thought you'd be the kind of person who gets scared of silly things like this, Jack. Well, I don't think it's right to mess around with stuff you don't understand, you know? I gave her a concerned look. Now promise me, Steph. Promise me you won't go try it. She sighed in annoyance. Fine, fine. I won't play this scary cell phone game. Are you happy now? I told her I was, but truth be told, I was scared. I didn't believe her, and all the time I had known her, I had never seen her betray anyone or sleep around or anything. But she'd always been a trickster and a liar would lie to anyone about anything if it got her ahead without hurting anyone else. But to be honest, I always thought it was kind of cute and just accepted it as her quirk. But this time it was serious. So a few days later, when she came back and told us that she had joined the cell phone game, I was pissed. What are you thinking, Stephanie? You promised you wouldn't do that. Yeah, yeah, I know. But it's not any big deal. I've already got it all planned out. Besides, if it's true and it works, it's too good of an opportunity to pass up. She held up her phone. Look, she said giddily. A text message was open on the screen which read, Welcome to the game. Kind of freaky, huh? I got it just after I sent the text at midnight. Just like the girl said. My jaw dropped. I was speechless and scared stiff. This game couldn't be for real, could it? Stephanie, if this is real, then you're in danger now. You've only got two weeks to find the protective item. I know. That's why I sent the text to Rebecca. I'm going to find out if it's true or not. I hit the roof. You did what? But Stephanie, if this is real, that makes you as good as a murderer. You cursed Rebecca, and now she could die because of you. Relax, Jack. I don't actually believe any of this stuff, but even if I did, Rebecca's always been a big-time bitch. It's not like she doesn't have it coming anyway. She giggled, she giggled that same mischievous giggle of hers that I'd always loved, but this time, I wasn't loving any part of it. A couple of weeks passed, and nothing happened. But then, one day, Rebecca didn't show up at school. At lunchtime, Stephanie was sitting around with an unusual... Sorry. Stephanie was sitting around with, with us as usual with the assistant principal came to talk with us about a megaphone. May I have your attention, please? Everyone got silent. The police have reported that one of your fellow students, Rebecca, has gone missing. Stephanie's golden skin turned white. She froze. Her parents are very worried about her. If any of you know anything about this, please come and talk to me after school. That is all. Stephanie, I whispered. I was very afraid for her. I was very afraid for what she might do. She looked at me and said, Don't say anything. Just don't. She got up and bolted the lunch She got up and bolted from the lunchroom. I chased after her. Stephanie, Stephanie, what are you doing? She kept jogging away from me, her cell phone out. Don't try to stop me, Jack. If I'm gonna survive, I'm gonna need more time. I can get another week if I curse someone else, and that'll give me three weeks to find it. Stephanie, listen to yourself. Who are you going to curse? You kill someone for a little extra time? Look, what's happened to you? She was starting to cry. I know, damn it. But I know if I don't But I know if I'm going to curse, no one's gonna miss them, I promise. Stephanie, that's not right. You can't do it. No one deserves us. Let me help you. We can find the protective object for you together. She turned to show me her cell phone. Her text outbound had a message which read, Welcome to the game. She had sent it to Rottenbauer. I started to weep. I grabbed on her as tightly as I could. Stephanie, Stephanie, I love you. I'm so sorry, this isn't right. None of this is right. She held on to me and began to cry deeply as well. We held each other there for nearly an hour like this. I still remember it was like I still remember it like it was yesterday. Then, that night we went home. 
We both resolved. We both resolved we would look start looking for a protective item the next day. The next day, I was walking with Stephanie along the track after school when Rottenbauer approached us with his cell phone. He was furious. He held it up to his face. Is this your idea of a joke, you stupid bitch? Truth be told, I felt Rottenbauer had the right to be a little angry. Sure, he was a Nazi pervert freak, but with all the whispers of murder going around, I could only imagine anyone being angry about getting a text like this. But even so, I wasn't going to let anyone talk to my girl that way. Hey, buddy, watch your mouth. That's no way to, t- that's no way to talk to a lady. Lady, Rottenbauer shouted. This fucking slut isn't a lady. She's a bitch, and she tried to kill me. I bet you killed that other girl, too, didn't you, Rebecca? She missed because of you, isn't she? Stephanie began to cry again. I pulled my arm back and punched as hard as I could at Rottenbauer's face. He stumbled backwards a few steps and grab- grabbed his lip, from which trickled a little stream of blood, but he kept his composure. I halfway expected him to swing back at me, but he just stood there. After a moment, he spoke. You just don't get it, do you, Stephanie? I'm already in the game. I always have been. Another fucking score, but unlike you, I never curse anyone else. Bullshit, I said. If that's true, how are you still... Suddenly, I remembered the Solinsk Rottenbauer war around his life that caused me to limp in agony, and what Stephanie had told me at lunch. Whenever a new protective item was discovered, whatever it was, it would cause the bear to suffer. Your protective item, you have one. Stephanie's eyes lit up. It was clear that she realized the same thing I had. Rottenbauer smirked. That's right. I just figured your girlfriend better know that she didn't get any additional time for trying to curse me. I've already been there and done that. Stephanie looked up at him with fear in his eyes. Days passed, and try as we might, Stephanie and I couldn't find anything that would qualify as a protective item. We were approaching the two-week deadline, and she was looking for more and more scared by the day. Her hair was a mess. Her usually bobby personality was glum and distraught. She stared off into space during classes and prayed constantly. After the two-week deadline passed, we were both terrified. She came to me at school and said, Jack, I want you to sleep with me tonight. Stay with me all night. Don't let it get me. I couldn't refuse. I showed up at her house late that night and came in through her window. We slept together. It was bittersweet. She went to sleep holding me, but I lay awake most of the night watching and waiting until I finally fell asleep around 4.30 in the morning from sheer exhaustion. The next day when I woke up, all I could think was, Stephanie. I looked around frantically. She wasn't in the bed next to me. Stephanie! I said louder as I climbed out of the bed and began to search for her. I walked into the kitchen. Don't be so loud, a voice said. It was Stephanie's. I turned around to see her sitting at a round table in the kitchen. She was smiling and seemed giddy as ever. I breathed a sigh of relief. My parents have already gone to work, but I don't want the neighbors to get suspicious and say something. I wept with relief. It was over and she was safe. Nothing had come for her. I ran across the kitchen floor and hugged her and kissed her all over. Everything was perfect. For two weeks. Then I came to school one day, and nine of our classmates had disappeared, including Sam. Everyone was in an uproar. No one knew what had happened to them, or where they had gone. No one except for me and the person who had done it, Stephanie. If the amount of time extended was halved each time you brought someone into the game, then nine people would have brought her just over two weeks, which meant that her time would be running out again tonight. I confronted her about it after school. Stephanie, the police are getting suspicious. You can't do this anymore. I can't watch you do this anymore. It's wrong. It's evil. She looked at me soundly. I still remember the look in your eyes that day. At that, at this point, it would become clear to me that the girl I knew and loved was long gone, and all that remained was a soulless, wicked shell which clung to life and forced death more than anything. But, even so, I still loved her more than anything. She was my first and only girlfriend, and I couldn't let her go. I couldn't let anything happen to her. It's okay, she said. I won't do it anymore. I've accepted what I needed to do, and I'm going to do it. No one else is going to die because of me. Stephanie, are you sure? Because we can still find a protective item for you if it looks if we look for look now. She looked down sadly. There's no use in running from it now. I just want to spend the night with you tonight, okay? One more night together. That's all I want. I was heartbroken. Everything was melancholy. Everything was melancholic and too melodramatic. I was so sad at hearing her words and the thought of her being taken away. 
I threw up. I vomited and retched over and over in, in a nearby garage. Or in a nearby garbage can, trying to fight an endless stream of tears. That night, she slept with me again. Sick, weak, and tired, I passed out from pure exhaustion at 3 a.m. Less than an hour later, though, I woke with a start. Stephanie was gone. I sat around and looked around in terror. Then found a note. I read it. Jack. I'm sorry for lying to you again, but I'm not ready to die yet. A chill went down my spine. I continued to read. I figured out what I needed to do. Don't worry. As I promised, no one else is going to die because of me. What could she be thinking? I looked around my room. Suddenly, I noticed that the 45 caliber pistol my father had brought me for my 18th birthday was missing from my room, and everything made perfect sense. That's why she'd wanted to spend the night with me tonight. She wanted my gun. She was planning to go after Rottenbauer and his protective item. As fast as I could, I threw on some clothes and bolted for my truck. I sped off towards Rottenbacher's apartment. When I was there, the the lock had been shot off and there was voices inside. I pushed the door open. What's going on here? I demanded. I looked around. Stephanie was holding Rottenbacher at gunpoint with my .45. The apartment walls were covered in pictures of Adolf Hitler and swastika banners. There were whips and chains scattered around the bedroom floor. Rottenbacher was stomping around in long sleep pajamas and cursing at her in his typical neo-Nazi form, screaming at her with about home invasion and calling the police and this and that. He was even wearing that stupid Nazi armband. It was obvious this guy was a lunatic frantic. Lunatic fanatic. Stephanie screamed at him, Shut the fuck up! She fired around at the wall behind him and winced. I remember my ears ringing from the loudness of the gunshot and a sharp pain in my inner ear but it was too tense to worry about at the moment. Now give me that barbed torture thing you're always wearing, or I'll kill you right now. Her voice was all malice. Rottenbauer stood in place for a moment and slowly began to remove his pajama leggings. You're making a big mistake, he said. You should accept the way things are and die with dignity. You're not going to get away with this. He removed the Solinsk from his leg from which trickled a small amount of blood and handed it to her. Immediately, she slipped it into her own leg with one hand, following with my pistol as she tightened it until it hurt, and her own leg began to bleed a little. Let's go, Jack, she whispered and turned to leave. I started to walk out with her from the apartment. I heard Rottenbauer shouting, You won't get away with this. He's going to come for you, and he's going to drag you up to hell for what you've done. You're going to pay for all those kids. I could see that she was sobbing a little as she walked away. I was sick. I was disgusted from everything. I was disgusted that Stephanie was being so cruel and selfish. And I was disgusted for myself for seeing all this and seeing the signs and not doing anything to stop it. But at least now it would be over. As we walked back to my truck, I said a small prayer for Rottenbacher in, his, in the hopes that he would, could find a new protective item within two weeks. He may have been a racist bastard, but in a way he was still better than Stephanie if what he said about cursing anyone else was true, and he didn't deserve to die for that. I drove Stephanie home. She was exhausted. I would have given her a kiss on the cheek, but I was too sick and just wanted the whole ordeal to be over. Good night, I whispered to her. Good night, Jack. I love you. She whispered back, and climbed in my truck and went back to her house. I started to drive home, exhausted from the day's events. Suddenly, my cell phone began to ring. I picked it up. It was a call from Stephanie. I answered, Hello? The first thing I heard was a shriek, followed by the sounds, followed by what sounded like the noise of pounding at the door. Jack, help! He's here, he's here, and he's coming for me. Wait, what? Hold on, Steph. I pulled a U turn in my truck and sped off back towards her house. Stephanie was becoming more frantic. Suddenly, at the end of the line, I could hear the sound of the door being bashed in, followed by another shriek. I could hear Stephanie screaming at the top of her lungs, a hideous blood-curdling scream. I still remember every moment of it perfectly, and I remember her screams from... And I remember her screams word for word. No, no, I don't want to die! Adrenaline surged through my heart, and I floored the accelerator. No, 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 stop! She screamed again, and I heard what sounded like the phone hitting the floor, and Stephanie's screams getting further and further away, and then dead air. Stephanie? Stephanie? Answer me, damn it! Getting no response, I hung up and called the police. When I arrived at Stephanie's house, the front door had been smashed in. I parked my car in her lawn and jumped out, carrying my 45 caliber pistol with me. 
I ran inside, searching the halls. Everything was in slow motion. Then I came to Stephanie's bedroom. I turned on the lights and checked all the corners of my pistol leading the way. At length, I lowered the gun as something caught my eye in the center of the room. Stephanie's cell phone lay on the floor next to her bed. In the middle of the room, in the carpet, was a very small patch of blood. It wasn't more than a few drops, but the most chilling sight of all was at the edge of, the, of her bed. To the door of her room, which led out in the hall, was a trail of claw marks that she had left as something or someone had dragged her away to her doom. I couldn't take it anymore. I turned and left the room. On the way out, I couldn't help but notice that she had torn out most of her fingernails clawing at the carpet and that they had laid scattered near the trails her fingers had left. I went out into the street and threw up again. I couldn't hear the sirens coming in the distance. Days passed, then weeks, then months. The police did investigations. They questioned me time and time again, and every time my stories were all the same. I told them the truth as I knew it, as unbelievable as it was. I don't think they believed me, but all the evidence supported my story, and there was nothing to implicate me in any way to the crime, so at length they finally let me go. Things gradually went back to normal. Our class eventually recovered from the losses of many of their classmates, and over time my mind kind of accepted what had happened until it seemed like a distant dream. I graduated and moved on to college. But there was one thing that still bothered me about all of this, and that was Rottenbacher. He had been exactly right. Even though Stephanie had taken this Solinsk, he never vanished in the way she had and others did. But there is one thing I do know, and that is the very day. If you ever see Rottenbacher, he's still always wearing that red Nazi swastika armband. Bridge in the Park, written by Moise Squelch. The children in the town of Redacted knew better than to cross the old bridge in the park, especially during the evening hours and foggy nights. Even the grown-ups stayed clear, knowing that those who dared venture out were doomed never to be seen again. And everyone knows grown-ups are usually pretty naive when it comes to such th- such matters. They had even made an effort to stop people from crossing the bridge by making a gate that closed every day an hour before sundown to block access to the park. The grown-ups seemed, prou- seemed so proud of themselves for protecting the little ones, and so the, the children didn't have the heart to tell them that it was a waste of money. Better spent buying a birthday and Christmas presents. Everyone knew better than to cross that bridge, so there was no reason for a gate at all. Unfortunately, Eleanor was nobody. And even if she was somebody, she was still very she was still a very stupid little girl. Born and raised in the next town over, little old Eleanor had only one little Eleanor had only recently moved to Redacted. When her parents divorced and her father and new stepmother got full custody of her, though she fancied the idea that she was just too clever to get along with the other children, the opposite fact in fact the opposite was in fact true was nearly as ignorant as a grown-up, constantly questioning things and demanding evidence for every trivial truth. Some of the harsher rumors claimed that she didn't believe in ghosts, aliens, or even the completely inarguable fact that the fourth-grade homeroom teacher, Mr. Mason, was a werewolf-demon hybrid from Heck who worked for the devil himself. Thus, Eleanor had rightfully replaced paste-eating Patty as a village idiot in redacted elementary school. Even so, Eleanor was very prideful. No matter how much the other children chastised her for s- saying silly things like, there's no such thing as baby-biting sewer clowns, she persisted. It wasn't long before everyone started avoiding her, fearing that her blatant disrespect of the supernatural made her dangerous and unlucky. At first, Eleanor didn't seem to mind too much, as her vanity deluded her, as her vanity deluded her into thinking she was better off alone anyway, since apparently she was just so much more intelligent than any other child anyway. Still, even nobody's getting lonely, and so when she heard the other children discussing the matter of an old bridge in the park, 
She couldn't help but butt in. Oh, come on. How is a bridge going to eat children? It's just a bunch of stories, stones. The children had heard her say many strange things, but now she had gone too far. Even the grown-ups knew how dangerous the old bridge was. A few of the kinder, more patient ones gave Eleanor a pitiful glance, reminding themselves that she didn't know any better. But while things like Mr. Mason and the sewer clowns were survivable, the old bridge in the park promised at least a bazillion percent chance of never being seen again. Sure, the children hated Eleanor, but they wouldn't wish such a fate upon even the worst of the little girls. They begged and pleaded her to drop the subject as she demanded proof and credible sources of information. Some were valiant enough to promise an invite. Some were valiant enough to promise to invite Eleanor to their birthday parties if she'd promised never to cross the bridge. But stubborn little Eleanor wouldn't listen to reason or bribery. She swore them she'd prove that the old bridge was nothing to fear using a hand-me-down video camera she received on her ninth birthday. Tonight, I'm going to cross that old damn bridge, she said, and then you'll see how foolish you are. There was no way to stop her from killing herself without putting some effort into trying. Distraught, the sweet and generous children of Redacted decided they'd try and be nice to Eleanor on her last day alive. All except Patty, who wasn't too keen on being the stupidest child in school again, by not stealing dessert from her lunch and not throwing worms at her during recess. Eleanor didn't appreciate their efforts. That night, Eleanor snuck out of the safety of her home, biked to the park, and struggled over the gate. Tonight was particularly froggy, and it took her longer than expected to get to the bridge. Apparently, the gate wasn't the only precautious... Apparently, the gate wasn't the only precaution the grown-ups took. They'd also changed the pass around so the only way to get to the old bridge was by following the winding deer pass through the marshy woods. It was eerily quiet. No owls hooted and no crickets chirped. Any reasonable person would have recognized the silence as an omen of horrible tragedy to come, but not a girl who denied even the existence of moon vampires. Armed only with her reckless self-confidence and a flashlight, Eleanor walked to her own demise. By the time she found the bridge, it was nearly a quarter past ten, widely known in the town of Redacted to be the most sinister of times. Obviously, this was true. Why else would the grown-ups rush them to their rooms and demand they sleep until the sunrise promised their safety? Eleanor either willingly ignored the time or just didn't know its significance as a normal little girl until going to a smug little rant about how stupid she thought everyone was and how she couldn't wait to see the looks in their faces when she proved to them that there was... And she was right. She was so self-satisfied that God himself probably considered striking her down with a lightning bolt for being so prideful, but then decided he was better off not wasting his precious time. She lifted her foot to step onto the bridge, but hesitated, as just for a second an ignorance clouding her mind had cleared. It wasn't too late to turn back. If she chickened out now, the offer, the other children would surely only make fun of her cowardice for a few weeks. And as a bonus, she'd not suffer what was most likely a horrible death. After an agonizing 12 seconds of thought, Eleanor put her foot down on the stone of the bridge. When she wasn't immediately exploded into confetti, or elsewise injured, she let out a whoop of celebration and started bragging incessantly to her camera. Meanwhile, God was probably reconsidering his leniency. As she walked on, she prattled to the camera and bragged about how, how clever she was. All in all, it took nearly five minutes of her self-righteous babbling before Eleanor realized something was amiss. This is a very long bridge, isn't it? Thinking she had misjudged the width of the river, Eleanor peeked over the railing only to see that nothing below her. And it's so foggy I can't see a thing. Maybe people have gone missing because they fell off. Despite her efforts to see the river, she couldn't even hear it, no matter how much she tried to clean and pop her ears. The fog made it impossible to find it. But it had to be there, right? And so she continued on, every step making her more and more anxious. At this rate, her camera was going to run out of batteries. Any rational person would have turned and turned tail and run, screaming like a banshee that had stopped on a Lego. Turned tail and screamed like a banshee that had stepped on a Lego. But again, Eleanor hesitated. She checked the time of the watch she had borrowed from her stepmother as if it would tick out. Nope, everything is perfectly normal. Do carry on. In Morse code. This must be broken, 
Surely I've never walked for a whole 30 minutes. Her panic only rose when she checked to see how long the camera had been recording. Eleanor hadn't pressed the button, and all this time she'd been talking to no one like a complete maniac. Before she had time to swear aloud, her flashlight had, a nerve, had the nerve to flicker. Not only had she forgotten to record the experience, she'd left her spare batteries at home. Eleanor was in trouble, though she didn't yet realize how much trouble she was in. Even now, she thought the worst that would happen if she got lost on the way home without any lights to guide her away. Her shoulders slumped, and with a pout, she turned around to head back before the batteries died completely. She felt almost as dumb as she was. Wandering in the woods so underprepared, cockiness killed the cat, Eleanor supposed, though by killed she actually meant non-lethally inconvenienced. Maybe she'd try again tomorrow night. It felt like three hours passed, but in reality it was closer to two and a half. Eleanor, Eleanor, patron saint of not believing anything without proof, ignored the very real evidence of her stepmother's watch telling her it was nearly one in the morning. Unable to control herself anymore, she burst into a sprint, ran as fast as her little legs could carry her, just desperate to see the bank of the river. Her flashlight gave out, and so did her confidence. She screamed as loudly as she could and fell into a heap onto the cool stone of the floor. What was she supposed to do now? Turning back clearly wasn't any good, and seeing as the park was closed, there was no one around to hear her pitiful cries for help. And so Eleanor gave up. Instead of running around screaming, she opted to sit there and wait for the sun to come up. Surely it'd be a waste of energy to do anything more. Hours passed by, slower than maple syrup right out of a too cold fridge. Eleanor did anything she could think of to pass the time. Practice multiplication in her head, figure out what she'd tell her father when he found out she'd been out all night wandering the woods, anything but acknowledging that maybe she'd never get off this bridge alive. Though, instead of fearing monsters, she was still afraid of everything of earthly things that, like dying of wolves or boredom. To prevent at least one of these things, Eleanor put on her camera, for real this time, and began recording her goodbyes. At the very least, she thought, she could delete it if anything turned out alright. As if on cue, a light in her peripheral vision caught her attention. She quickly turned the camera off and got to her feet. Was it the sun already? No, it wasn't the right color, and it was too small. Could it be? Hey, help! Like a moth drawn to a bug zapper, Eleanor scrambled to her feet and darted to the light. Help me! Hello? The light, or more accurately, the ancient old lady holding the light, responded. Are you lost, little girl? Eleanor slowed to a quick jog, tears of relief swelling in her eyes. No child in the entire world had been more happy to see a weird stranger on a bridge. Yes. Oh, thank you so much. I was getting worried that I'd never see anyone again. She couldn't yet see that the old woman had no eyes, or that her right arm appeared to be made of solid gold. She didn't see the many rows of bristle-like teeth in the fingers that seemed to be, have twice as many bones as they should have. If she had, maybe she'd have stopped herself before running straight into the monster's arms and running, hugging her close. Please, will you take me home? The monster was taken aback. She'd eaten many children, but this was the first time... But this was the first to... So quickly give it's it's ugh, good lord, but this was the first to be so quickly give up to itself up to her. This was very fortunate for Eleanor. If the monsters were more focused, she'd have unhinged her jaw and swallowed her whole before Eleanor had the chance to look up and realize she was in mortal danger. With a scream, she threw herself on the monster, off the monster, and back the way she came without even looking back to confirm what she was saw was real. Skeptic or not, she was prepared to face the lonely bridge before facing what seemed to be an ancient monster. The old woman regained her wits and let out a cackle before chasing after Eleanor. Don't you want me to help anymore? Her feet pattering. Her feet pitter pattering in such a way that it sounded like she had three sets of feet. Eleanor had never been an athletic child and she was still plump with baby fat and too many Christmas sweets. There's something about being terrified half to death that really gets the adrenaline pumping. Slow down, sweetie. It's been too long since I've had a good meal. I can't keep up. Eleanor li never listened, but for once, it did her some good. Her lungs burned as she gasped and, and just enough air to propel her safely. Though she didn't know it, the other children's carefulness was saving her. The monster was weak enough from hunger that 
she actually stood a chance of surviving. She was panting too hard to hear the river was babbling below. Her eyes were too clouded with tears for her to see the sun was rising, the fog was fading away. The moment the light of morning reached down to the bridge, the monster let out a horrible screech and quickly scurried down to the river. But Eleanor was still running until she was off the bridge and nearly out of the woods. Finally, she slowed to a walk to let her legs, her lungs rest. She's done it. She survived the old bridge. With a start, Eleanor looked at her camera and nearly sobbed with joy. The whole thing had been recorded. There was concrete proof of this horrible monster and her escaping heck. She had really only screamed the once time, so she probably looked pretty brave. The other children would be impressed with her. Her tearful rejoice settled into a worried frown. If this was true, then what else was? Was Mr. Mason really a demon? Did she really have to worry about sewer clowns and moon vampires and ghosts? Heck, it didn't matter. All that mattered is that she survived. And she could survive this, she could survive any crazy old thing. Her confidence rose again. No longer was she blind in the world around her. Now she she knew better, and she'd use her knowledge for good. Where did the mon- bridge monster come from? Clearly it was weak to sunlight and could only live in the darkness. Maybe she could destroy it. But she would need help. The other children knew things, but they were too afraid to fight them. It was time for them to change. It was time for that to change. Things in this town were, to go- were going to be completely different from now on. Together they would rid this town of whatever monsters may plague it. Eleanor sprinted off the bridge and through the woods, breaking into the road, leading back home. Blam! The truck had seemingly come out of nowhere, flattening Eleanor before she knew it what hit her. Literally, and thus the first child ever to survive the crossing of the old bridge had died. Not because of the monster that haunted it, but because she was too stupid to look both ways before crossing the street. hope you enjoyed the stories come back next week for more scary stories that i find on creepypasta websites until then always remember to face your fears